0: Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. This morning we'll look at the first seven verses Genesis 3 1 to 7. It's been debated for decades are our problems hereditary or are we only products of our environment? Is it nature or is it nurture? And now with discussions about such things as genetic engineering and evolutionary psychology, the debate only gets more complicated. But the Bible has a more profound answer to what's wrong with humanity than either that we inherited something or that uh, our environment uh, caused something, though uh, both of those are probably true in some sense. But here in our text, the Bible takes us back to the day of a perfect environment and a day of perfect heredity but a day when sin entered the human race, resulting in all the misery and destruction which history has recorded since. Here in Genesis 3, we learn what went wrong. And what went wrong is that man sinned. That's important to note as we begin this, that we're not dealing here with myths or legends or fables or parables. That's a very uh, popular thing to do with this passage. But the Bible clearly identifies Genesis 3 as history. This is God's account of the entrance of sin into his creation and the fall of mankind which resulted. Whatever your views of the creation of the earth, if you reject this account as fiction, you have to throw out the whole Bible, including the Lord Jesus Christ. For God says clearly that Adam and Eve were the first man and woman, and that in the garden on this day recorded, they first sinned against their Creator. And so sin passed on the whole creation, and all of the misery that we know is a result of this. But as we understand and accept this historical fact, which has led to such terrible implications for the world, we are then prepared to hear about another great historical event when Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, acted in our place again not to plunge us into disaster, but to save us and all of the implications that that had for this fallen world. One more word of explanation here. What we have in this text, is two things at the same time. We have both a description of that first temptation, how sin entered this world. But at the same time, we have a paradigm, a model of all temptation, which informs us for our own confrontation with sin every day. This is how sin will will come to you, too. In other words, what we learn about Adam and Eve's weakness instructs us concerning our own weakness so let's read it Genesis chapter 3 the first seven verses now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden the woman said to the serpent we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There are three truths that I want us to consider in this uh, passage. We'll spend more time on the first one, a little less on the second, and the least on the third. The first truth is this. God's Word shields us from sin. God's Word shields us from sin. Now, before we get into that discussion, note that our account begins with the appearance of, of the serpent. That raises all kinds of questions for us. What kind of creature is this serpent? We know serpents as a snake in the grass. What was this serpent before the fall, before sin and the curse came? We don't know. And since Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 identifies the serpent or the power behind this serpent, the real one we're dealing with as Satan, then we get the question, well, where did Satan come from? Well, we really don't know for sure. A couple of passages, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, talk about what may be Satan's fall. But in fact, where did evil itself originate? And and why did God allow evil to to even appear in his creation? Oh, there are more questions than we could begin to address. And God doesn't satisfy our curiosity about these things. Instead, he just plunges in and begins with a reality which we will come to know well throughout the Scriptures, and we probably have come to know already well, and that is that Satan is a subtle, wily devil. He is a master of deceit who will take any form and use anything to fulfill his goals. He is bent on destruction of God's people and God's creation. And so he appears here in the form of the serpent to tempt the man and the woman. Ah, but God has given them his word as a shield against such temptation. And so not surprisingly, that word of God is the first focus of the tempter's attack. Here he seeks, first of all, to remove the barrier to sin. First thing that happens is that God's word is questioned. Verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's a shrewd question. It's, It's not a denial of God's word. Not yet. It just raises the question whether it's true or not. But neither can it be answered with a simple yes or no. It's like that old question, did you stop beating your wife yet? Well, what's the right answer? If you say yes, you assume that you were beating her. If you say no, you, it seems that you still are. And so, so Satan asks here, the tempter questions God's word, but at the same time, has God really said, but at the same time he casts it all in a negative light. For God never said they could eat of no trees in the garden. God said they could eat freely of all the trees. Except one. But when the serpent asked the question, has God really said, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He twisted it. He distorted it. Oh, how subtle. The serpent changed the bountiful goodness of God to make his command sound like it was an oppressive denial of privilege. people, the tempter still works the same way. In virtually every temptation, the first issue is, did God really say that? Everybody thinks God, did God really say that? That sounds really repressive. Next, the woman attempts to answer. The tempter's question. Look at verse 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did, said, did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. What is noteworthy about the woman's response to the tempter here is her lack of precision concerning the Word of God. God had said, you may eat freely of everything in my garden except this one. She admitted, he said we could eat, but she left off the part about his bountiful goodness. God had only forbade them to eat of one tree. She added the more restrictive nor shall you even touch it. And as we all know, she was not the last one to add extra restrictions to God's word. And then God had said strongly, as strongly as he could say, if you do, you shall surely die. Well, she softened it slightly, lest you die with careless imprecision. She tried to use God's word in kind of a general paraphrase way to deal with what was a very subtle, deceptive, tough attack. She seemed unprepared to use God's word in such a situation. And I would ask you, how well are you prepared for such loaded questions about God's Word? The psalm writer writes, Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. God's Word is a shield to keep us from sin. Do we hide it in our hearts? For many of us, God's Word is such a muddled generality in our minds that we're almost totally unprepared to even discern what is really from God's Word and what's from somewhere else. You see, the words matter. What God's Word actually says matters. You cannot afford to face temptation in this fallen world in semi-ignorance. Well, the next thing that happened is having softened the woman's resistance. The tempter now makes a frontal assault in verse 4 and 5. Let me read it again. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Whatever subtlety this serpent might have had earlier it's gone now. This is blatant. Blatant in two ways. First of all, he explicitly denies what God said. There's no justification offered. There's no proof offered. There's just this bold assertion that God is a liar. God didn't say that. You will not die. What began as a question has now become an assertion. There is no judgment. Sound familiar? We live in the day of the big lie. Say it loud enough. Put it on enough channels. Repeat it often enough. And it must be true. 87% of the people agree. It must be true. The tempter's attack. But even more blatant, to us, Satan's accusation against God in verse 5, he doesn't just say God's a liar. He accuses God of having an evil motive. God's withholding something from you. God doesn't want you to have all that he has. God is keeping you from your full potential. And in a way, the tempter was right. God was withholding something from them. He was withholding the misery of experiencing sin. He was protecting them that they might only know his goodness, not his wrath. Oh, surely the woman could see through this, couldn't she? But then we don't, do we? In fact, did you ever think that every time you sin, every time you sin, it's because you are certain that there is some good, there is some pleasure there is some fulfillment in that sin which God has withheld from you. But you're going to take it because you know better. If you really believed that God wanted his best for you, you would do what he said. Folks, do you see how the tempter operates here? He begins by questioning then attacking the Word of God and eventually the God of His Word. Derek Kidner writes, the tempter pits his bare assertion against the Word and works of God, presenting divine love as envy, presenting service as servility, and presenting a suicidal plunge as a leap of life. Indeed, the serpent was crafty. Ellen Ross observes, it is interesting that three times the Word of God is quoted here, but never appropriately. Once it is questioned in a misleading way, once it's paraphrased with major changes, and once it is flatly denied and folks this is still the battleground upon which God's people fight this it is a battle for the integrity of God's word has God said in the world the battle is assumed to be over everybody knows God's word's not true in the church the tempter is so much more subtle. For while confessing the Bible to be the inspired word of God, Christians daily deny its relevance to our situation or its sufficiency for our problems. And so we walk down the same path that Adam and Eve walked. For well, God's Word was given to us to shield us from sin. Which brings us to the second point. Sin appeals to our desires. This is how temptation works. Sin appeals to our desires. Ever notice how people will do things when they're away from home that they would never do home, uh, around home? where friends and family are present? Ever notice how people will do things in the dark when no one can see that they would never do in the clear light of day? That is evidence for the fact that when the restrictions are removed, we become weakened to withstand temptation. Well, the most effective restriction, the greatest safeguard of all, is the Word of God. And so when it is effectively removed, whether by being considered an outright liar or just being considered as irrelevant and insufficient for us, when the Word of God is removed, we are at the mercy of our own desires. Alan Ross puts it this way, the work of the tempter was finished. He had removed the barrier to their eating. Eve was no longer convinced that God would punish them for it. And he had brought them to the brink of sin with his rationalization. Eve thought God was holding back from her. Now, the appeal of the forbidden fruit was sufficient to draw them into sin. For sin appeals to our desire. We can see this happening in verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. First of all, she saw that the fruit was good for food. Here's a physical, practical appeal. Everyone has a desire to eat good food. God made us that way. It's good. It's the heretic who says food is evil. Paul tells us. And here's the fruit. It's good food. You see, the issue was never that here's a good tree and here's a bad tree. Here's good fruit, here's rotten fruit. Oh no, they were both good. Everything God made was good. The only thing that made this tree sinful was that God's word said no. But once the word of God is removed, now with no reason left not to, she is drawn by the goodness of the fruit. It's good for food, for sin appeals to our desire. Let's all like the looks of the fruit; it was pleasing to the eye. We read the appeal of aesthetic beauty. God made us with a wonderful capacity to appreciate beauty and to make things beautiful and to recognize what is beautiful. And God made this fruit beautiful. So once she had nullified God's command about it, all that was left was the beauty of its form and its color and its texture, and she was drawn to what was beautiful for sin knows how to appeal to our sin. And then thirdly, she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, God made us with a thirst for wisdom. It's a good thing. But God says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Unfortunately, that has now been set aside, and so she sees the fruit as holding before her the promise of wisdom. Now, it's not clear what about the fruit made it seem like it had the promise of wisdom. What it appears to be has happened is that the woman has substituted the serpent's lie, if you eat it it will open your eyes like God. She's she's removed God's restriction and substituted the, the serpent's lie and attached it to that fruit so that when she sees this good for food Pleasing to the eye fruit she has attached to it, the tempter's promise, and it will make you wise. And thus something that was to be the vehicle of death suddenly looks inviting for wisdom. She's drawn by her desires. Now we don't even have to wonder if this is what's going to happen to us, for the Bible says it in so many words. In 1 John 2, the Holy Spirit describes the appeal of the world in exactly these terms. Let me read it to you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, Eve saw it was good for food, the lust of the eyes, and it was pleasing to the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it was desirable for wisdom. All this is not from the Father, but from the world. John, right? The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Dear friends, do not underestimate sin's appeal to your desire. It is not for nothing that Solomon warns in the Proverbs, can a man take fire into his lap and not be burned? Neither can you play games with your desires and think that you will not fall into sin. It is sheer folly." Your fall is certain when you just throw out your desires to whatever appeals to them. We seem to think we are invincible. We think we can watch anything. We can read anything. We can listen to anything. We can think about anything. We can talk about anything without it ever affecting our heart. How foolish! Everything you see and everything you hear and everything you think and everything you see is a matter of your heart. And sins appeal. It's to your heart, through these normal, God-given desires, now polluted by sin and wanting to latch on to the sinful even more than the good. Sin appeals to our desire. Don't kid yourself. Oh, but it's even worse than that. There's a third thing I want to say. Sin dares to take God's place. Sin dares to take God's place. We, we mentioned this briefly a few minutes ago, but let's not just slide over it. For this is at the heart of man's fall into sin. Sin is not just about transgressing God's command. Sin is not just about wanting something that God said, no, but I want it anyway, and so I took it. Sin is much, much, much more serious than that sin dares to usurp God's place. That becomes evident in the tempter's most blatant appeal in verse 5. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And what? And you will be why God. The tempter is promising them that they can take God's place. Now we see the same thing when we think of the sin of Adam. The New Testament makes the point that Eve was deceived. She believed the lie, she fell into the tempter's trap, and she sinned thinking she was doing a good thing. It was wrong, but she thought she was doing a good thing. Adam was not deceived. In other words, Adam stood there listening to all this and he saw through it. He saw it for the lie that it was. And knowing exactly what he was doing, he took the fruit that his wife offered him and he ate it in disobedience. What on earth was going on in this man? It was pure rebellion. Perhaps for the sake of his relationship to his wife, he was willing to take on God himself, but he knowingly, willingly usurped God's place, setting himself as the final judge of what is right and wrong, what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not going to do. And thus, as the steward and Lord over all of creation as the head of the human race Adam committed a treasonous mutri- mutiny in our name too and we have all come to bear the guilt that passed upon the human race but folks before we get too self-righteous this is the nature of our sin too this is the nature of all sin sin dares To take God's place. It always involves man acting autonomously. I will no longer play the role of the creature. I will call the shots. I will not bow my knee to the creator. I will be the one who decides. It always turns God's authority on its head and takes it to myself. When we come to the New Testament, that's how we see man's sinful situation described in Romans 1. They suppressed the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but they exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever such is the nature of sin. Every little sin, your sin, my sin, it is nothing less than an attempted coup against God. I will not have you to tell me what to do, God. I will be the master of my faith. I will be I will do it my way, and you will not tell me otherwise, God. Sin dare to take God's place. The way the world reads the story of Genesis 3, the bottom line is always so. So what's the big deal? They ate a forbidden apple. So what? We've all done worse. But it was a big deal. For in order to eat that forbidden fruit, not an apple, by the way, God's word had to be denied and set aside. And then the forbidden thing became the object of their desire and their affection, drawn by their desires so much that they took it and ate it. And in so doing, they dared to usurp God's place. And the truth is, you and I have done the same thing. So what hope is there? Here they are in a perfect environment with no adverse heredity. And look at the fall. And here we are, having inherited all kinds of sinful tendencies, And in the midst of a world that eggs us on all the time, what hope is there possibly that we might ever be different? Well, there is none in ourselves. You've already proven that you will do the same thing, and so have I. We're no different. We keep repeating generation after generation. We keep repeating the same problem, the same sin, the same fault. Our only hope is this. There was another Adam. There was a second Adam that came. That's how the New Testament refers to Christ Jesus. He too was tempted. The same kinds of temptations, not in the Garden of Eden, but out in the wilderness. He endured the same kinds of questions, the same kind of insinuation, the same kind of full assault from the evil one. But in every case, in every temptation, he answered carefully, Thus saith the Lord. No, God's word says, and he remained faithful. And far from usurping God's place, we read in Philippians 2 that God's place was rightfully his, for he came from the Father, the Father's only begotten Son. He was in very nature God, the the, the radiance of the Father's glory, and yet he humbled himself and became a man And after living in perfect submission to the Father, never usurping the Father's place, he submitted himself all the way to dying on the cross. And God, pleased with his Son, raised him from the dead. The apostle explains to us that Jesus, in doing all of that, in that obedience, was acting as a second Adam, whereas the first Adam, by his one act of disobedience, plunged us all into destruction. Christ Jesus by his one act of obedience on the cross makes us righteous in God's sight not because we deserve it for we're no different than anyone else but simply out of his love and his grace for those who trust him. You see this is our great assurance we're right in the eyes of God not because we've just pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and learned to somehow throw off the sin which has, has polluted the race for centuries. No. We're right in God's eyes only because just as Adam acted in our place and, and heaped upon us this curse of sin, so Christ has acted in our place. And he's brought righteousness to us. Righteousness not, that's not our own. It's his righteousness given to our account as we simply trust him and entrust ourselves to him. Christ Jesus, by his one act, paid for our sin. And brings us to the Father. And to whom does he give this standing? Those who trust him. Those who call upon him to save them, Give up on their own attempts and follow him. And that means you. I call you this morning to abandon thinking that you will ever clean up your life. That you will ever somehow figure out how to be good enough. How to stand against temptation on your own. I call you to come and cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus and trust him to save you in spite of what you are. And as we come and trust him, he makes us new and he gives us his spirit and then he begins to empower us and inform us of how temptation works and equip us by his spirit to be able to say no to ungodliness for a change and to be conformed to be like he is. Not that we can earn that, and somehow gain his favor, but because he gives us his favor, he changes us with a new life. You might just want to pass over this story as an interesting old fable that doesn't really affect us. But as if to emphasize the importance of this event for all of mankind, here in Genesis 3, God brackets it with kind of some bookends that hold it up for us. Two, two statements that are just the opposite. The first one is in the last verse of chapter 2, the verse right before the first one we read, chapter 2, verse 25. There we read, The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Here's the innocence and the openness of God's creatures, man and woman, made in his image, living with no need to cover up, for they know no guilt, they know no shame, they know only perfect relationship with one another and with their creator. But at the end of our text, the very last verse, only seven verses later, we read, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they sewed figs together big leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Oh, well, you see, the innocence is gone. Guilt and shame has overtaken them. And it continues to this day to destroy. We live in guilt. We live in constant cover. We live in constant shame. Even when we put a nice smiley face on inside, our hearts burn with guilt. And we cover and we cover We don't want anyone to know what we really are like. What happened? What happened from naked and unashamed to guilty and shameful and covering? What happened? Sin. And it will continue to destroy all mankind except for those who are clothed now in the righteousness of Jesus. Amen. Father, I pray that you would take this text and arm us with it, that we might know what to do when temptation comes our way. For before this day is over, every single one of us, Father, will face the subtlety of, uh, of, uh, of sin's assault on us, questioning, your word, denying it, denying your motives, appealing to our senses, appealing to our self-centeredness. Oh, Father, we have no hope we would only fail again and again and again except that you have come to bring newness of life. And so, Lord, I pray that every single one of us might know what it is to abandon our best efforts in ourselves and to trust the Savior Lord, in him, I pray that you would give us strength to walk in newness of life and to say no to uh, to ungodliness and to to, to be able to withstand the temptation, knowing what's happening and trusting in you and knowing the power of your spirit. Lord, we desperately need you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.